0: Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can find these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're in PwC's brand new studio in Washington, D.C., in our just-constructed New York Avenue office where today I'm honored to have Will Morris back on the podcast. Will is PwC's Deputy Global Tax Policy Leader. Will was appointed chair of the American Chamber of Commerce to the European Union in Brussels, and also chair of the Business and Industry Advisory Committee, known as BIAC, to the OECD in Paris. Will, welcome back to the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast.
1: Doug, thank you very much for having me. And can I say, great to see you in person. It is great to see you in person, Will. Well,
0: Will, as our global tax policy leader, you traveled as much as, your de- <laughs> as our deputy global tax policy leader, you traveled as much, if not more than I did before the pandemic. My question to get things going, what have you done with all of your extra time during the pandemic? And have you picked up any new hobbies? I mean, sourdough,
1: piano? Well, no to those. I had the intention of reading uh, Proust's A La Recherche de Temps perdu. Um, I never got as far as even buying the book. What can I tell you?
0: Well, good intentions. Um,
1: I I also, my
0: wife and I got ukuleles. Um, (laughs) I I think I made it one lesson. I I can't even play a chord at this point, but my wife has really, uh, has got some talent in it and has really stuck with it. So it worked. So it worked for For her. her For her. All right. Well, let's move on to the OECD and BEPS Mm -hmm. 2.0. A couple of months back, I had Callum Dewar on the podcast to give us an update on the July 2021 Inclusive Framework. I'd encourage folks to listen to that for a refresher on BEPS 2.0, because we're going to get into some advanced material yep. here. Around that time, Pascal Sentimond, the director for the Center of Tax Policy at the OECD, said in the OECD podcast, and I quote, The next step is finalizing the deal in October. There is not much to do, just a few numbers to firm up. Close quote. So on October 8th, Will, 2021, 136 out of the 140 countries of the OECD inclusive framework on base erosion and profit shifting have politically committed to potential fundamental changes to the international corporate system. So my question is, was Pascal right? And there wasn't much to do other than firming up a few numbers.
1: Um, Was it quite as simple as as portrayed? Um, No, and obviously we'll get into that. This was a political agreement. uh, And, you know, I think that we, we should acknowledge that uh, and you know, give the OECD credit, give Pascal credit, um, for pulling it to this stage. But to say that everything is decided, again, as we'll see, um, is perhaps to overstate it slightly.
0: Well, a lot of us in the U.S. have been very focused on U.S. tax reform. Yep. I mean, just everything that's been going on between the House Ways and Means proposal and the Widen proposal. And I feel like as I'm out you know, around the country and on Zoom calls, whichever the case may be these days, yep. there's just a lot of focus for, particularly for U.S. multinationals on U.S. reform. Before we dive into some of these details and some of the numbers that were actually firmed up as part of this most recent inclusive framework, why is this important for taxpayers, practitioners, others to, to pay attention to? And you know, I just really feel like it might be more on the back burner than it probably should be.
1: Right, um, I mean, it's a great question. And you know, I, I spend my life, and I say this without uh, any rancor at all, I, I spend my life as um, uh, sort of feeling like the third wheel on this stuff. Um, you know, this project has been bookended by TCJA uh, and now by the reconciliation process. And it is completely natural that large U.S. taxpayers pay a great deal of attention to what's going on uh, in Washington D.C. Um, I, I think we can sometimes get a bit wrapped up in the details, but you know this is the primary taxing jurisdiction. The OECD looks like a long way away. Some of it seems like real-time inside baseball stuff. You know why do I need to know these details? Um, a lot of people make the point that the OECD does not itself have legislative ability, unlike the Congress. Um, so it all seems just, you know, sort of y- yeah. We get it's important, but but this is actually more important. Well, you know, this has now been cooking for four years. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little more to go to be sure, but we're getting close to the stage where some of this stuff is going to matter. And if you're a USMNC doing business in 100 countries outside the US, this is going to affect you probably in all 100 of those countries, and it's going to affect you potentially on Pillar One, even if you're not in that top 100. It is probably going to affect you on Pillar Two, even if guilty is a quote-unquote grandfathered compliant, whatever you want to call it regime. So you need to pay some attention to this. Completely understandable. You're watching Washington, but save a little bit of bandwidth for what's going on outside because this will have a huge impact. Right. And and I'm with you on the,
0: the with Pillar One, and we'll dive into some of the specifics. But you know, Pillar One generally will impact the 100 largest companies, and we'll we'll talk and d- about directly yeah. directly yeah. directly. But but pillar two, you know, could impact directly everybody. And to your point, whether you are US MNC with a hundred subsidi- foreign subsidiaries, or even five foreign subsidiaries, right. or even if you're a foreign-based multinational with the U.S. subsidiary subsidiaries under the U.S. and other subsidiaries, I mean, this really is going to impact everybody. And we'll talk about the globe and some of those specifics. Yep. All right, so let's move on to, to, to Pillar 1 and really want to focus on kind of what's been decided since July. So right. maybe if you can give us some of the, the highlights or, or lowlights, I guess, depending <laughs> on what the,
1: your perspective might be or what your position might be. Yeah, so let me jump back very briefly to before July because, you know, April is a key date in this. This is when the U.S. essentially changed the principle underlying this or in, some, in my view, actually removed the principle underlying this. Because they moved this away from being activity based, you know, um, uh, automated digital services or consumer facing businesses to this top, you know, sort of the most profitable Mm. companies in the world. Uh, And that was a big change. It it broke the logjam, to be sure. Um, But it did also remove a sort of anchoring principle, partly a why are we doing this. But if you don't actually know why you're doing something or what the principle is, it's actually hard to say, well, here's how we're going to do it. Because what is it that you're doing? Um, so what has changed since, uh, since July? And A couple of the numbers have firmed up, honestly. I mean, we now know that the, uh, the 10 billion is going to be um, averaging uh, over a period of years. So that's you know an attempt to deal with lumpiness. Now, you know, whether that works out pro-taxpayer or, or, or anti-taxpayer remains to be seen. You can envisage a situation where, uh, for example, you're mostly under the margin limit, except you have a blowout year, and then all of those years get pulled in. That may not be fair. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if you dip below one year, they certainly don't want you to miss that. So, so that's one of the things. They have firmed up the amount of residual profit, in quotation marks, not as TP folks understand it, but as defined here, the amount of residual profit to be um, uh, reallocated, they said, between 20 and 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the July document, they firmed up at 25, an imaginative number to, <laughs> uh, to reach. Um, you know, other than that, there really hasn't been uh, a great deal of movement on this. We think we know a little more about the scope, um, but we're not entirely sure. We know the scope has been narrowed to what, we don't exactly know. Regulated financial services we think is narrower than it probably was in the blueprint a year ago. Um, we know that they're worried about FinTech. Um, with what had previously been natural resources, extractives has been, is the new term, which obviously sounds a whole lot more upstream than it does downstream. So we know a little more about it, but we don't know a great deal more about it. So let's unpack a couple of those, sure. particularly
0: these ten, the 10% number on profitability yep. that came up. There has been a lot of discussion about segmentation. And yep. what about multinationals that have a number of different businesses, some being more <clears throat> profitable than others? Did we get any additional clarity on that? They talk about uh, um, an averaging mechanism, but there's really not any detail. Right. What What insight can you provide on this? 10 percent profitability that's discussed
1: yeah so again that's just as a baseline here um you know what number is it what what income is it that we're talking about and i think what we do know is that they're, they're going to use the same income base profit base if you will for pillar one that they're using for pillar two which means that it's kind of new so you take the audited financials you break those down by country maybe break them down by entity uh, and in that way, you reach this this profit base. So th- it's going to be a slightly different number to a tax number. It's probably it's going to be a different number to a gap number or IFRS number. Um, so so that's an important thing to 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 start off with with segmentation. I mean, as with so much of this, um, it, it's a bit sort of reading the tea leaves. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's reading the space between what they actually say, um, because there is a lot of blank space around that. So on segmentation. Um, there are two, two potential types of segmentation. One is business line segmentation. The other is regional segmentation. They do not seem to be in favor of regional segmentation. Um, on business line segmentation, uh, I was fairly clear, fairly clear, I don't want to overemphasize that, a couple of weeks ago that really they were, what they were saying was if you don't meet the test as a group overall, but you have a large enough segment that meets the test on its own, so you know, 20 billion... 10%, etc.
0: The segment in of then itself.
1: Then the segment in and yeah, the segment in and of itself, then that segment will be in. There's been a question raised as to whether there's a sort of intermediate category, which is that an entire group is in, let's say with a 12% profit margin, but they have one very large segment which is meets the the, the 20 billion threshold. Um, and that segment, for example, is has a 15% profit margin or a 20% profit margin. Do you separately segment that very large um, line of business. And again, as I say, a couple of weeks ago, I was fairly clear that the answer to that mm. was no, that you'd only get a segmentation if the group as a whole didn't, didn't meet it. The language doesn't quite get us there, um, and I think that's, you know, that's one worth watching. I, I don't think it's a big issue, but it is one worth watching. On the averaging, as you say, who knows? Uh, I mean, you know, is it a three-year period? Is it a five-year period? What does that mean? You know, One of the, issue, one of the, one of the many issues around amount A Um, is how does this interact with everything else? Because it's not necessarily a static number after the year is closed because there are a bunch of adjustments which could could go back in there. A big one is transfer pricing adjustments, you know, just straightforward transfer pricing Mm -hmm. adjustments. Because again, bear in mind, even though 25% uh, can be quite a large number for some very large corporations, that still leaves 75% to be dealt with under transfer pricing. That's residual profit. And then you have everything below 10%, You know, quote unquote, routine profit, which is also subject to transfer pricing. So there can be a lot of movement in the rest of that, which can then go back and affect amount A. And likewise, you know, if three years down the road, with a five-year averaging, suddenly you find you know years one and two are pulled into this, you're going to have some retroactive calculations Mm -hmm. to make on that. And then who's going to deal with that? How are the countries going to going to adjust for that? So it's not it's not easy. Uh, You know, maybe going back to Pascal's comment. There's a little bit that needs to be sorted out. Right. It'll be very interesting because this
0: obviously, as we've talked a lot about here in the cross-border tax talks, really turns transfer pricing on its head. And to your point, yes, 25 percent of this residual profit gets allocated. That means 75 percent is based on traditional transfer pricing principles. Well, it only reflects now three quarters of the pie. So will companies update their transfer pricing policies or or, or rules? Um, A lot to be seen. One last question here on, on pillar one is that I know there was some analysis um, done on which companies may be impacted right. by, by <clears throat> Mount A. And it, and it seemed from some of the initial analysis done from just looking at public financial statements that there maybe not surprisingly is a disproportionate amount of US
1: MNCs on that list. Do you have any comment or thoughts on that? Well, I mean, there have been a number of people who looked at this now. And, you know, I think it, it seems that. You know, if there are 100, I mean, that's not a, I, I suspect that's not a scientific number at this point. But if there are 100, then sort of 45-ish of those are going to be U.S. corporations. I think what you know what we do know is because U.S. corporations are on balance more profitable uh, than others, uh, particularly once you've taken out, um, you know, some of the accepted things like like FS. Mm-hmm. Um, then actually, 60% of the income to be reallocated. Uh, under amount A is is going to be from US groups. Now we don't know where that's going because, as we'll talk about in a second, um, you know the ceding/slash surrender jurisdictions is a very very uh, undecided point. Um, let me just go back to one. I'm a terribly uh, undisciplined interviewee as you already know. <laughs> um, but let me go back to just one point on transfer sure. pricing because we say that you know 75% is, is traditional transfer pricing. I think what we have to bear in mind is that as this project has gone along, it has. Impacted, maybe damaged, but certainly impacted traditional transfer pricing principles. So, um, you know, amount A is in a sense a repudiation of the arm's length standard, and tax auditors will bear that in mind. Um, it's also a repudiation of tra- uh, traditional nexus standards. So, you know, the the nexus standard for amount A is essentially a sale. So, you know, the impact slash damage that that could have done to transfer pricing even quote-unquote traditional transfer pricing shouldn't be underestimated. So we're going to need to watch that as we go forward as well. There is a lot of stuff in the mix here. Oh, yeah. All right, so one thing that they
0: w- was not really mentioned in the most recent inclusive framework was related to amount B. So we'll just kind of put that on the back burner as the OECD did. Very nice. important from a marketing and distribution to understand how, those, the, how that income might get allocated. Yep. But they did mention unilateral measures. And so this is a concern for a number of of taxpayers, the UK DST comes to mind, they have other DSTs in France. What did we learn about, DS or about unilateral measures and DSTs and what's gonna happen in
1: the, the near future? Uh, if I'm being brutally honest, we got a new form of words um, which told us exactly what we knew before, which is that if the US does something, the other countries will do something. But until the US does something, the other countries won't do something. And you know, there were new stories uh, just in the past couple of days you know, the French finance minister announces that the Europeans have reached agreement on. You know, the, the the at least big five European countries have reached agreement on the withdrawal of DSTs, which essentially tells us that when the U.S. does something, they'll do something. I mean, you know, there's a there's a dance here, and it it it's all tied up, uh, as we'll get to again. You know, with the difficulty of the U.S. legislative process versus a parliamentary process, which can be controlled. But you know, I think that we will live with DSTs. Is it possible? Uh, I mean, I know that the U.S. is trying to engage in, in unilateral discussions, uh, or oh, sorry, bilateral discussions uh, with certain countries, mm-hmm. which might result uh, in the um, in the suspension of collection, for example. But we're not going to see the other countries, you know, essentially give up those cards until they're certain that the U.S. one way or another is going to act on it. And you know, I think we have a, a sort of fancy word harbinger. Um, you yeah. know, I, I think we can see what might happen there. Um, just in the past week, Canada has announced it doesn't have a DST. It's announced it will not enact a DST. It won't be effective uh, until 1124. And if there's an OECD agreement by that point, it'll never be effective. But if there isn't an OECD agreement on 1124, then the Canadian DST will be effective from from 1122, which raises some interesting accrual issues as right. well. But you know, watch for other countries to do that as well. So I don't think we're out of the woods uh, on DSTs by any means. So um,
0: as we wrap up here Pillar One, what's left to be decided? Still a lot of open-ended <laughs> questions and just uh, maybe some of the the, the highlights of, of kind of, of still what's left to be
1: decided, right? We have these basic principles on numbers, but we just don't have any detail at all. Right. So the most important issue, because it is a fundamental political issue, is which countries give up tax revenue. Now you can say that you know you can say all you like. But this is that, you know, it's actually the companies that, that, you know, will face higher taxes. Yeah, but uh, it's actually countries which will give up tax base mm-hmm. um, uh, and therefore tax revenue. Uh, and that hasn't been decided. The U.S. has a point of view on this uh, and has tried to put forward something which looks at a return on tangible assets um, uh, and, you know, maybe a return on payroll. Uh, and then has suggested a waterfall, I, w- I won't even bother to get into this, right. um, and you know, the European countries have, have looked at something different because they think that the US proposal can produce arbitrary results. They're looking more at you know, sort of tangible property, plus payroll, plus maybe something else, uh, and then you know, allocating out on a pro rata basis. There are some proposals to restrict it to the top 80% of, of countries you know, or income, to take the small ones out of it. They're going around, uh, apparently, Going around in circles on this because hey, it's about money. This right. is always about money. BEPS was about, you know, untaxed income, the, the pot of gold in the middle of the table, where every country was a winner and no country was a loser. This is not the same. Right. This really isn't the same. And that obviously makes it difficult. So, you know, on the on on the surrender jurisdiction stuff, that's 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 difficult. You know, we still don't have a huge amount of clarity around dispute resolution.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, uh, you know, we know that it'll go to this first panel, but You know, again, go back to my point about winners and losers. Um, The winners will undoubtedly accept the result. The losers will probably fight to try and keep their tax base when they can do. So there could well be disagreements at this first level. It it then, at least from the blueprint, is meant to go to a second level, not mentioned here. Um, But also, this will require a huge amount of, you know, person power uh, to, to, to make it work. Senior tax officials who really understand this stuff... Getting together, can they do that for a hundred corporate groups? I think the OECD has already been clear. This can't happen for amount A in year one. Well, okay. So how are you going to do it then? Um, so you know the, the the issues around dispute resolution uh, are very important. You know, a, as we've talked about, there are issues around segmentation. There are issues around scoping. Yes, mm-hmm. marketing, distribution, safe harbor, Amount B. Your right is way off on the way off in the long grass. Right. But it it it, it tells you that. While we have some headlines here and while we do have a political agreement, which is important to push the technical folks forward, none of this stuff is going to be easy. And then overlaying all of this is that it has to be put into some type of an instrument. They're calling it a multilateral convention. That is an important difference between a multilateral instrument, you know, the BEPS one, because BEPS, M-L-I, essentially allowed for a mass changing of bilateral double tax treaties. This is a whole new thing. Um,
0: in other it, words, it's not an addendum, if you will. It's, that's it's, probably not the right technical term no, no. to existing treaties, that, right? right? This is a whole that's right. new thing.
1: Yeah, this, this is not an overlay on something else to make it happen to make the changes happen faster. This is a whole new thing, which will create taxing rights, which will need to be also backed up by national law, changing transfer pricing rules. There will be interactions with current tax treaties. How much of the stuff do you build in? Do you build in the rates? If you build in the rates, you have to build in ways to change the rates. How do you do that with 130 some countries, how do you do it with more than two? Um, you know, again, just a bunch of really, really interesting but difficult issues. For
0: sure. So what is the timeline? What is, what is Pascal and the team kind of thrown out with respect to, well, when is all of this going to be resolved and ultimately what is the intention for this
1: to actually get implemented? Okay, so this is where there is a, a divergence between, I'm not gonna say fact and fiction, but there's a divergence between the political um, narrative Uh, And the technical narrative. The political narrative is that the treaty will be open for signature early in 2022, with the Mount A being effective in 2023. Uh, I I think, honestly, if the treaty is done properly as it needs to be, firstly, it's going to be a long document. Secondly, it's going to take a long, quite a long time to ratify, particularly by those countries which are the losers. Um, And you know. I don't know. It's, uh, I, I would be surprised if it was ready to be signed in 2022. I think 2023 for, you know, for, for effective date is, is pretty optimistic. I think quite a lot longer than that. However, uh, and we should always be clear about this, you know, looking back to BEPS, which you'll remember as well and in some senses as painfully as I, right. um, not everything always gets wrapped up. It is entirely possible that the treaty is bare bones and that much more of this falls into national legislation. The more that happens, however, the less possibility or the less likelihood there is of consistent implementation and of countries agreeing everything, and it'll be again in those gaps, in those interstices, um, that the difficulties really arise. So, you know, is, is 23 totally impossible? I think if we're to do this well, it is very, very unlikely. But there is a danger that that doesn't happen because the politics overwhelms us. And that, again, is why folks, however important Washington is, should spare a little bit of bandwidth for this because the political momentum behind it, unlike in our Congress, is like 100% in favor of something happening here. All right, so let's move on to, to pillar two. Indeed. Um, which, as we discussed, will
0: impact all, virtually every multinational, yeah. frankly, U.S. Or, or foreign-based multinational. So the way I think about GLOBE, and is a guilty, type regime, but based on country by country principles. And that's that's more designed for some of our U.S. tax practitioner listeners to understand really what what globe means. It means every country that has signed up for this is going to have a guilty type regime to tax income of the foreign subsidiaries on a country by country basis. So can you tell us a little about what what has firmed up since July? What more
1: have we learned specifically on the globe? And then we'll come to the under tax payment rule. Uh, sure. So um, what has firmed up um, in, in possibly the worst kept secret of, this, secret of this whole project is that the minimum rate is now 15% as opposed to at least 15%. Uh, great. Um, there is, um, I, I would not put a huge amount of um, uh, confidence in that. Numbers can move whether they say at least or, or whether they don't. Uh, and again, Just bear in mind what we've been talking about in terms of a treaty for Pillar 1, there will be no treaty for Pillar 2. That was never the intention. There is a little bit of a hint of a discussion, sort of, kind of, Uh, In here, but it won't happen.
0: The intention, in other words, being that each country will have to adopt its own domestic legislation.
1: Yeah, guilty and and,
0: guilty and beat. Exactly, guilty and beat. And we've seen what has happened, even in the EU, with some of the anti-hybrid rules, and just that every country ends up
1: adopting their own tweaks to the, to the legislation. Yeah, and you know, even with a. So, I mean, we'll get onto this in a second, but. You know, even with a European directive, an EU directive, which I think everybody agrees they have to use here, otherwise it, it simply won't stand up in European law, as we saw with the ATAD and with the anti-hybrid stuff, it is possible in transposing that international legislation to build in some little tweaks, and some of those tweaks actually can be really important. And you know, I think one of the key things to remember, and this again is you know sort of the difference between the politics and the, the practical side of this is most countries are not doing this to top up somebody else's tax base, particularly if somebody else is the United States of America. What they're doing this for mostly is to protect their own tax base, which means there is g- always going to be an incentive to focus on, try to bring in the undertax payment rule, and therefore deny deductions, rather than ensure that, yes, the US has a good IIR, mm-hmm. and the US is collecting you know, 15% across the globe. So. Um, you know, we have to watch out very carefully for that. Um, you know, how does that, how does that work out in practice? Well, we'll see. Um, but, you know, I think that with, with Pillar 2, um, as you say, it's going to affect a lot more corporations. You know, anybody with, a, with revenue over 750 mm-hmm. million euros. Um, and it could come in a whole lot quicker. So, a follow up to that is one of the things that Callum and I discussed
0: was Ireland, right? 12.5% rate. They had appeared to resist kind of signing on to the initial inclusive framework. Well, Ireland is now on board. One of the things that um, I've gotten a lot of questions from clients and frankly, I'm still not entirely clear about, well, does this mean Ireland is going to adopt a 15% statutory rate? Does this mean all these other jurisdictions that have a rate at or, or you know below 15% are going to move their statutory rate? And I, I feel like there's been a little bit in, in the media, um, some uncertainty as far as how that's been reported. Can you provide any clarity on that? <laughs> huh.
1: Uh, well I can guess, yes. um, hopefully an informed guess. So uh, yeah, I think Ireland will change its statutory rate. Um, they've made clear they will only change their statutory rate for um, uh, for entities, foreign entities, um, above 750 million euros. So they will keep the 12.5% rate uh, for entities below that. And there, there are some indications, although I, I don't fully understand how you get around European law on this one, that they'll also keep the 12.5% rate for purely domestic hmm. uh, corporations. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see on that. Um, will other countries do that? Chances are they will do. I mean, we've heard quite a lot of uh, chatter, and I'm now not talking about Ireland because one of the, one of the things that Ireland has to figure out is, is state aid rules. Um, but, you know, with some countries in the Far East, for example, um, they have been very clear when talking to taxpayers that, yeah, they'll raise the rate to 15%, but they will try to ensure that benefits are delivered uh, in another way. Uh, and, in, you know, even, in, um, even within Europe, there are differences on this because some countries have R&D credits, for example. Right. Other countries have R&D grants. Um, and while they try to seek a, you know, sort of parity between those two things, you can deliver some things through grants. You have to obviously observe WTO rules, um, but those are not as strict as, as EU rules. Um, so you know, one other thing that Ireland said, and this is interesting because it doesn't show up. Some of this stuff shows up in the carve-outs. Um, you know, which have been made considerably more generous, but the Irish finance minister, who does not generally misspeak, did say something when announcing you know the fifteen percent thing that ireland's r and d regime would continue to to provide benefits um so is that something that we don't know about? Is that something that you know again we have to read into the gaps so yeah there 'll be fifteen percent. I would expect most countries to do that i mean in a sense, why wouldn't you? It actually brings you a little more tax revenue, which you can then disperse uh, in other ways, um, should you wish to. Which and, it,
0: and it gives some political cover for those that are looking to, to potentially raise right. those rates.
1: But also interestingly, of course, it, it does somewhat scramble the, the revenue estimates of who wins and who loses under this. Yeah, fair that, enough. Because actually some of the countries which are you know, meant to be, uh, from which it is expected that revenue would be flowing, actually revenue may be flowing into them uh, as a result of this. So you know, it's, it's more of unintended consequences, perhaps.
0: Yeah, and you had mentioned the substance-based carve-out. There were some additional details in Pillar Mm -hmm. 2 related to those carve-outs with regards to amounts that will be carved out. But um, like the rest of the document, there was not a precise definition of payroll and tangible assets. And so we'll have to to wait for that.
1: No, that's right. And I mean, you know, payroll is an interesting one because, you know, does that just mean your wages? Does it include Social Security? If so, just your Social Security or employer Social Security? Uh, other things as well. I mean, we do have, what we do know is what the direction of travel is, which is these things are getting larger. Um, so, uh, you know, a transition period of 10 years, which is in business planning terms, just about forever. Right. Um, the amount of income excluded will be 8% of the carrying value of tangible assets and 10% of payroll. For the first year, five years, uh, it only declines by 0.2%. Um, uh, and then for uh, in the second five years by, so not very much in other words. Uh, and those become much more generous. I mean, that becomes a much more generous car. Obviously, bear in mind, additionally, the cube eye could be going in the other direction. And it's, it's probably, I'm just going to make a US comment for a second. It is worth observing that Pillar 2 is moving in a, oh, I'll use loose terms, in, in a more generous direction, at exactly the same time as Guilty potentially moves in a less generous direction. And that actually politically is very important for everybody else who's doing pillar two, because you know, if the target, as it honestly always has been, is US corporations, then it makes it much easier to do something which marginally affects your corporations if the US is doing something which much more you yes. know, severely impacts uh, its own corporations. So, you know, QBI moving in one direction, if we move to C by C, then guilty is C by C as well. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, there are a lot, again, a lot of moving pieces in here. But the carve out is a very important part of that because tangible assets can be very large uh, and payroll can be very substantial as well. So let's move on to the undertax payment rule. So That's I kind of view favorite. this, I view this well as a
0: backstop, <laughs> if you will, to the, the guilty, the globe rule. And, and in fact, as, as we've talked about on uh, some of the prior podcasts, the new the proposals in the House Ways and Means for the beat really yep. look like a, an undertax payment rule, which will generally deny deductions from a jurisdiction. To, to a jurisdiction that is not subject to an appropriate level of tax. Right. So what have we learned about the under payment rule and then we'll talk a little bit about this, that subject to tax rule?
1: Not very much is yeah. the answer. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of this document completely reasonably is cut and paste from the July document. What we, the one thing we do know about the UTPR is it won't be effective until 2024. Uh, I'm relatively convinced that none of this will be effective before 2024. Right. And maybe, to do. maybe further than that. So I'm not sure how, how big of a deal is that. And there's also, there's a little bit of... Um, Stuff in, in a sort of de minimist sense, but I'm going to go back to your, um, you, you know, sort of to your theory of the case, which I'm not sure is completely right, which is that you know politically, yeah, to be sure, the UTPR is a, only a backup to the income inclusion rule. They're very clear about the rule ordering. As I said before, however, what most countries want to do is preserve their own tax base, not enhance somebody else's, uh, and therefore there will be incentives uh, to apply the UTPR. Now, what they've done is to make country by country into a super factor for the equivalence of guilty and Pillar 2. So if for some reason we don't move to country by country in in reconciliation, um, then that gives other countries a really good reason to say guilty is not equivalent to Pillar 2 Mm -hmm. and therefore we're going to apply the UTPR. Bear in mind, they can always apply the UTR directly to payments into the US because payments received in the US are not foreign income. So they're not going to be subject to guilty in the first place. So the UTPR is there anyway. And if there's a difference, as there will be, because the, the guilty tax base is a U.S. tax base, Pillar 2 is as profit before tax, financial accounting base. If there's a difference between those two tax bases, and it actually turns out that for some reason, under the Pillar 2 calcs, the income received in the U.S. Uh, is low taxed, then it's possible to apply the undertax payment rule over there. Also, your anti-hybrid example is really important because... You know, despite the fact that the US enacted anti-hybrid rules in TCJA, a number of countries have passed rules since then saying, "Eh, it's not quite the equivalent anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're going to continue to apply those rules. Likewise, they could do that here. Even in the EU, even with, you know, sort of transposition under a single directive, and go back to that treaty point, there is nothing which can enforce conformity between countries. And, you know, CFC rules... And the like are not covered by tax treaties, so therefore there is no way of sorting out double taxation here. So it is entirely possible that the UTPR, despite the fact that it is meant to be subsidiary, even if guilty is a compl- compliant pillar two regime, is going to be something that U.S. corporations need to watch very, very carefully. Right, and imagine if, that, imagine if guilty is
0: not deemed to be a compliant regime, just the, the complexity is
1: just, will be mind numbing. Well, the complexity is gonna be mind numbing anyway. I mean, l- let's be very clear about that because we have to work out a new tax base. We have to do this for 130 countries with slightly different rules. Yeah. It's not gonna be simple. All Can't right, th- so
0: one of the other numbers that was firmed up was the subject to tax rule. So uh, do
1: you have any insight on, on that? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> kind of. Um, look, the, the subject of tax rule uh, has always been described as something which will benefit developing countries. Um, you know, because pillar, pillar two, you know, the IIR the and UTPR, as we've already described them, are going to be complex. I mean, our very last point. And maybe too complex for you know, some, uh, some tax authorities to handle. So the STTR was meant to be a simple rule it looked at a statutory rate with a couple of adjustments. 9%, okay, well, it's, they've, they've taken it to the top end of the range from 75 to 9%. Still not that high. Um, and the union you know, of the African countries, the African Tax Administration Forum, have made the, the point that, you know, statutory rates in, in Africa are quite often 25% or higher than that. Um, so, you know, there's going, to be, there's going to be a mismatch here. I think the other thing, and you know, again, these, these countries have been very clear about this, is the STTR has been narrowed to the extent that it has almost no applicability. Mm-hmm. I mean, it only applies to countries where there are already bilateral tax treaties, and guess what? Do you know how many tax treaties the US has with all countries in Africa? Right. A handful. Right. So this is going to be of, of no use to those. So, you know, I think that the ST, uh, STTR, it, it's one worth watching, you know, at one point. I think probably as we discussed the last time, I was a little worried that this was gonna be the minnow that swallowed the whale um, because it might be blown out. It seems like the big countries have clamped down on it and said, uh-uh, no, no, this is going to be pretty narrow. So a couple of things that we
0: haven't discussed that, st- that add to some of the mind-numbing complexity of calculation of the effective tax rate, right. how the safe harbor is gonna work, Maybe we put them in the context of what's left to be agreed. Still a lot of detail. So uh, yeah. what, what's still left on the plate
1: after this October inclusive framework? Sure. So I mean, we we believe we've been told, and I think probably we will see detailed rules, more detailed rules for Pillar Two, uh, sometime in November, probably the end of November, probably Thanksgiving Day. In fact, that's to a, be, to be that's precise. in a month from where we're recording <laughs> that's right. this. That's so. right, and it won't be a turkey. Just right. to be clear about it. <laughs> but you know we will see more details but uh, you know i think probably we're talking about 30 or 40 pages of you know sort of fairly generously laid out rather like you know the inclusive framework statement so it'll be more as somebody's described it to be more like a european directive than a you know than, than national legislation certainly the sure. type of legislation so there will still be things even there um, which will need to be decided it'll be a, a sense, essentially a set of directions but we'll we we'll, we will learn more about this on the you know, the, the ETR point, as I say, we have to figure out what the tax base is. And the big, one of the biggest issues in that is what do we do about deferred tax accounting? We know that there are a number of countries that are not totally in favour of deferred tax accounting. You know, the blueprint was mostly about using carry forwards, you know, a brand new system on top of a brand new system. Mm-hmm. We understand that they've gone back towards using more deferred tax accounting, but there will still be carry forwards and there'll be a cut off period maybe 5 years, maybe 7 years if things don't reverse inside of that. So a lot of stuff around um, you know the the effective tax rate calculation, safe harbors, again a very important thing. We know that they're not going to do white lists, can they do something which sort of approximates to that? Could they have a provision which says the top country, you know, the, the home country could could say we certify at least for our corporations that some of these countries are high tax countries and therefore you don't need to do the calculation. There are some in, you know, potentially inventive ways around that, but we've seen nothing on this for quite a long time now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be
0: interesting to see how those details come yep. together. So what is the timeline for, for, for Pillar
1: 2, or the proposed timeline? The I'll official it, timeline. Yeah, the official timeline. The happy timeline. Um, the happy timeline is that this will be enacted in 2022 to be effective in 2023. Um, again, based on our discussions, I'll let you um, run the odds on that one. Uh, I think it unlikely. Um, you know, I've spoken to folks in Brussels about this, and you know, they say no, we're going to follow that. You know, the French hold the presidency of the EU in the first half of 2022. They're going to push through the directive, then six months transposition. I, I did. I I didn't laugh. That was nice of me, not to laugh, <laughs> but I did say, you know, this is actually quite complex, and you're going to have rules ready to go for people to start collecting this information starting on 1123. Yes. Um, well, okay. So maybe not. You know, sort of deep in the weeds, technical tax experts on this. Yeah, you know, I think the earliest the EU could be effective is really truly as 1124, uh, and I suspect it may even slip beyond that. And then, you know, even then, with some of these exceptions we've been talking about, maybe longer than that. Yeah, my concern is, is if we end up with a
0: let's say a, a, a principles based document yeah. in November. Yep. And that politically, countries feel like they want or need to implement something in 2022. Yep. That we end up with just really a hodgepodge of different rules and technical rules that will just add to the complexity that we've already discussed. Look, I think
1: that's right. Now you know we've talked in the past about Tax Six. Tax Six came in effective. I can't remember what it was like 1117 or something like a 1180, or somewhere. But uh, there was a, like a two-year warm-up period before you had to report. Um, it would It is not beyond the bounds of possibility that some of the reporting on this, uh, indeed maybe even some of the payments on this, get deferred, but it's actually effective from an earlier date, which will, as we know, you know having me having been in business, you with so many, many, many clients who, are, who deal with this, delaying that does not really alleviate the pain you know going forward. So it is possible that something like that might happen, because again, there are two narratives, and the political one is a very, very strong one. Yeah, and to your point, the tax accounting of this, particularly
0: for public companies, I mean, it just adds uncertainty to the market, which I think historically uh, governments yep. uh, have generally tried to, to avoid roiling the markets with these you know, various you know, potentially retroactive tax um, enactments. It's going to be interesting. So let's move on now to U.S. implementation. So there's already been a lot of discussion with respect to what could happen in the U.S. And you had mentioned this new multilateral convention for Pillar One. We have the Pillar Two Globe, and whether guilty may be a you know a, a regime that is a good regime for 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 purposes of of determining whether the Globe turns on for other jurisdictions. Talk a little bit about what what would be required for the U.S. to implement this, and uh, you know maybe some of the procedural
1: aspects that there's been, uh, you know certainly some things written to date. Sure. On. So let me start with pillar one, and you know as we said before, pillar one is is intellectually, in a sense, much more interesting than mm-hmm. pillar two. Uh, pillar two, on the other hand, is much more important practically and and you know in terms of time implementation. Than Pillar One, but you know, with Pillar One, so there was a multilateral convention. The OECD and everything that it talks about says this needs to be done by a multilateral convention. However, there has been chatter here in DC about whether this could be done by something other than a treaty, because once you've seen, um, you know, there was a letter a, a week or two ago um, from the ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee, from the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, saying no way, uh, effectively. So 67 votes are you know are not there to be had. Right. But 50. 50 may not be there to be had, but certainly not 67. So now there's been, you know, there's been talk, well, are there other ways you can do this? Well, to be sure, you know, some of the trade stuff, NAFTA, for example, was done through something called a, an Executive Congressional Agreement or a Congressional Executive Agreement. Stuff I never thought I was going to learn about, but you're never too old, it turns out. Um, but you know, that's still subject to the filibuster. So you still need 60 votes. So that's unlikely. So now the, you know, the conversation has turned as to, well, what, what of this could we do um, uh, in reconciliation? And I'm not going to get into what the parliamentarian will or won't say. Mm. What seems to me to be very clear is that you cannot, in reconciliation, if, you've, if you're not doing this as a congressional executive agreement, bind other countries into this. And one of the most important things about the multilateral convention is the dispute resolution that it provides, and tying other countries into a similar you know, interpretation of these rules. If we do this unilaterally, and we can give stuff away unilaterally to be sure, Maybe we can accept stuff unilaterally. But what we can't do is do this dispute resolution mechanism. So, therefore, I think doing this in, in reconciliation would be very hard. It would also be partial, which I think would be a disaster. So, I, you know, I, I think that it seems to me that the only way through this uh, is to go via the treaty process or, or, or you know, the, or the 60-vote one. And I just don't see that happening. So we are talking about a process which will inevitably have to work itself out, out over a period of time, and that goes back to the point we... Discuss a whole lot earlier about DSTs and what happens there. So that's pillar one. You know, I, I think they'll give it their best shot. Uh, and, you know, we, we have this terminology thing. The US will clearly sign up for this because the executive branch has the ability to sign Right. That. What they don't have is the ability to essentially legislate it and, and bring it into force. Um, so we'll sign up for it. Um, that may in turn, um, whether sincere or not, lead to, um, you know, accusations of bad faith uh, if the Congress doesn't move on it. Um, I think at this this point people have been forewarned but nevertheless we are talking about politics again. So I think that takes time. Pillar 2, we are not going to lift up Pillar 2 and replace Guilty with it or or indeed beat slash Shield with it either. We're going to make our own changes. Some of the changes in the House bill come closer to to Pillar 2 to be sure, Um, others don't. Right. and you know, I think that there's obviously, obviously the fundamental question here is what happens in reconciliation, if anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they move in the direction, if they go towards country by country, certainly if they cut back on Cuba, so it c- becomes less generous than um, the carve-outs. Um, depends on what they do with expense apportionment. Depends on what they do with the foreign tax rate right, haircut. But you know, nevertheless, long story short, guilty is probably going to be quite a lot stricter. Um, uh, than Pillar Two, and indeed, you know, a year and a half ago, the OECD looked at this, and even then, with a stricter Pillar Two and our current guilty, they said these are, you know, not dissimilar; yeah. they're roughly equivalent. So, you know, talking about divergence, there's an interesting question about Shield. Um, shield, uh, we've heard almost nothing about it. We have almost no details on it, but it does look like it could be quite a lot stricter than the UTPR. If we then apply Shield to other countries, what are they going to do back to us? Uh, again, something, something worth watching. So a lot depends you know, on the, lo- on the next two or three months. One of the interesting sort of choreography issues here is that it now seems very unlikely that we'll have a firm answer to this by mid to late November when the OECD releases its rules. So the chances are the Pillar 2 rules will have a guilty-shaped hole in the middle of them, uh, mm-hmm. as they currently have, saying, you know, we just have to wait and see on this. So a lot, a lot will unfold uh, in the next couple of months. Yeah, totally
0: agree with that. And and we'll see where the reconciliation bill a- ends up landing, how that how they deal with guilty there. What I'm interested, Will, if we could end up with quite a showdown if the executive branch decides to move back to your pillar one point, yep. you know, with just 50 votes in the Senate procedurally and if that ends up then going to the courts, which one would, would assume that it would if the executive branch would try to move in that. And uh, it's just fascinating to me, Will, how this has really moved into the forefront of just actual news. I mean, there was a uh, an article on, on uh, MSN that right. actually dealt with tax treaties. I was... <laughs> I was just blown away yeah. by the fact that these very wonky technical issues that we spend our entire careers dealing with are now kind
1: of in front and center of just right. the existing political discussion. Well, Doug, as you know, I am decades older than you are. Um, but, you know, the beginning of my career tax was definitely on you know, page 28 or section right. C. Uh, and here it is on the front page. It's, it's time to go, obviously. But um, yeah, it, this, is, um, this is really interesting really interesting.
0: So maybe any closing remarks um, with respect to overall timeline? Um, you had already given us you know, some initial thoughts, yep. but anything to, to wrap for practitioners and
1: taxpayers and policymakers that may be listening? Uh, policymakers, let's work on the technical details, please, please, <laughs> please. Um, you know, for practitioners and taxpayers, look, keep watching Washington. That's absolutely fine. But save 10, 15% of your bandwidth for this because, you know, If you're doing business overseas, pillar one will affect you either because you're a very large company or because practically that's what tax authorities are going to do when they audit you, okay? They can take your money and you can fight them to get it back. And sometimes they don't observe the the legal niceties of actually treaties passing or legislation. So watch pillar one. Pillar two, you know, again you very much have to watch this. Because what other countries do and particularly, you know, the small tweaks they build into it could have a huge effect uh, on you. So pay some attention to this. You know, there are plenty of resources available to help you, you know, sort of give you this in, in small digestible pieces while you're watching Washington, but don't think that it's a long way away. It's a body that has no legislative authority and therefore it doesn't matter because I promise you it does.
0: Well, we'll see if the OECD meets its deadlines in November. I look forward to having you back and discussing some more of the details beyond yep. just some of the numbers Indeed. that have been firmed up. Yeah. Thanks, Will. Thank you, Doug. So, Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thanks again to Will Morris, PwC's Deputy (laughs) Global Tax Policy Leader. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Leader in the US. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast.